Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. It is Long Beach Grand Prix weekend, so appropriately, I have a guest who races in the IndyCar series and another guest who is a legend in the IMSA series. We'll start with Hurley Haywood, who is hugely accomplished in sports cars, a five-time winner of the 24 Hours at Daytona, three-time winner of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, But Hurley made history in another way last year. In his autobiography, Hurley, from the beginning, Hurley Haywood revealed to the world that he was gay. And last month, a new documentary was released about Hurley's life and what it was like racing as a gay man, a closeted gay man, for more than three decades and keeping his personal life shrouded in secrecy. I spoke to Hurley via phone the night before the movie's premiere and asked him if he could have come out during his career, what it was like being in the closet, what events prompted him to come out, and whether he thinks the racing world would be receptive to an openly gay active driver. Hurley uh, was very candid, had a lot of thoughts on all those topics. Uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing what he has to say about all that. After that conversation with Hurley Haywood, I'll be talking to Sebastian Bourdais, who is a three-time winner of the Long Beach Grand Prix and just got inducted into the Long Beach Motorsports Walk of Fame. I spoke with Sebastian via phone just after the season opener at St. Petersburg in March, and we talked about that wild three-wide pass that he made at Long Beach that actually turned out to be not a pass, unfortunately, for Sebastian Bourdais, but still not to the detriment of everybody who was watching that pass. It was uh, breathtaking and astounding, and it showed how good he is on a street course, uh, one of the best in the IndyCar series. It was probably the best pass of the 2018 season, even though it was deemed illegal. So we talked a little bit about how IndyCar officiating works, We also talked about Sebastian's season, his outlook for the rest of 2019, and racing in the 24 hours of Le Mans. Beyond just being a Frenchman, Le Mans is Sebastian Bourdais' hometown, and he has a very interesting perspective on what it's like to race in that prestigious, historic, iconic event. But let's get started first with Hurley Haywood. Here's our conversation. 
Hurley, I had a chance to watch the movie, and I thought, first of all, it was wonderfully done. I'm sure you're very proud of being the focus of it, and I know that they're premiering it tonight in Los Angeles. And I guess we could just start with, are you comfortable with doing this? Because I got a kick out of the fact during the movie, you talked about how you always threw up in front of microphones because you hated it so much, and you thought about driving off the track to avoid interviews. I presume you're okay with doing these sorts of interviews now. Yeah, I mean, the making of the, of the documentary was kind of a, a real journey for me. So the, the book and the documentary came out about the same time. And so each sort of evolved along their, their own lifeline. And it wasn't really a difficult choice to, to make a statement. But in an, and it's a little bit alarming to see your whole life in front of you, both in the, you know, in the book. The book is truly from the beginning, so it really goes back into my family and everything. And then the, the documentary basically concentrates on what being a racing driver was like back in the 70s and 80s. The thing that made the whole thing really super re- rewarding for me was, one, having Patrick Dempsey standing behind me, you know, and saying, this is okay, this is really going to be good, and this is going to help a lot of people. And then once it was out where people could view it, the response to it from the industry, the racing industry, has been super positive, and the fans have been super positive. People that I never thought would consider that for one second now suddenly say, you know, that's really cool. I've taken elements from that documentary and put them into my own life and how to deal with problems that I've got with my kids or, or my friends. So it's been really positive. There's so many sub-lines that you can take out of the film that can, can help. One of the sobering statistics that I read not too long ago was that every seconds an American takes their life by suicide, which, you know, is just crazy to me that, that we allow this to happen. And, you know, you've got gay kids that are committing suicide. You've got returning veterans that are committing suicide at, at horrendous rates. And I believe that you, when you have a problem, you've got to identify the problem and then talk through it. If you don't have conversations about problems, you're never going to move forward. And part of the message in the film was that we all have barriers in our lives that we have to knock down and we have to, to push through that barrier to move, to make forward progress. And if you don't knock that barrier down, you're not going to move forward. And so part of that ability to knock that barrier down is by conversation, by accepting different views on different subjects. And this is something that we we do all the time in racing. We, we, we have a problem with our car. We have, you know, uh, developments. We have ways to make the cars better. And all of those things are done by conversations. And the more information that you're able to give the engineers, the more successful that engineer is going to be at correcting the problem. So social issues are the same thing. More discussion, and then people understand what the problem is better, and they can correct it. Yeah, well, as someone whose uh, family also has been affected by mental illness and suicide, 
I certainly relate to what you're saying. I think being talkative and conversational about those things certainly helped. And you mentioned that stat on suicides involving veterans and those who are gay. And and that, of course, touches you in two ways. I mean, you also served in Vietnam. And as you mentioned, you came out in your book that came out, I believe, last year. You know, Hurley, you're a five-time overall Rolex 24 winner and a three-time 24 Hours of Le Mans winner, one of the greatest sports car drivers of your generation. But, you know, I'm glad you brought up Patrick Dempsey because he said something I thought interesting in your documentary. He said that if Hurley had come out in the 70s or 80s, your career would have been over because, you know, the racing world was such a world of machismo and intolerance. Do you agree with Patrick Dempsey that he was correct about that? And did you ever consider coming out earlier when you were still racing? Uh, well, I was very uh, conscious of of not making that too public. I think that the racing fraternity knew what, what was what my sexuality was, but I don't think that that really made a difference to them. Remember that, you know, I was, for the most part, running for European teams. Europeans were much more liberal thinking at that point, but I never wanted to make anybody uncomfortable with who I was or what my sexuality was. So even though a lot of people knew about it, it was never something that was necessarily discussed. And that was to protect myself, to protect the teams that I was driving for and the sponsors that were representing us. I was always very fearful about, you know, if I made it too public, what would the result be with the sponsor? What would the result be with my teammates that I was driving with and the team that I was driving for? So, yeah, it was it was something that really unfortunate, but I couldn't talk about it. But in the same case, it was just something that needed you needed to have that kind of attitude back in the in the seventies and eighties. We we progressed a, a great, made a lot of forward progress from the eighties to present, and right now I I think part of that is because people talk about it more. We're on the right path. Yeah, certainly those discussions, those conversations help. You know, the, the film mentioned that at one point, Hurley, you were sponsored by Penthouse, which be catering to a heterosexual audience. Do you think they or any other sponsors might have been aware of your sexuality, even though you hadn't revealed it publicly? Well, I know, I know Penthouse. I know that some of the girls we were dealing with knew about it, and it made no difference to them. Actually, it, it helped me form really close relations ships with them because they didn't have to worry, you know, Hurley's just trying to get into my pants, you know, kind of thing, where they were much more open and the the whole thing kind of clicked and made, you know, life on both ends a lot easier. You know, that was never a deterrent. And I love, you know, I love working for them and having them as a sponsor. And, you know, some of them knew and some of them didn't. It didn't really make any difference. And the decision you made to come out, Hurley, as, as a gay man in public, it seems like from the film that it was really informed by two things. I, you know, first of all, Peter Gregg, your driving partner in sports cars for so long, who committed suicide in 1980, and that you felt like if people had been more open and talking about his difficulties, his mental illness, that he might have lived. And there was a story you also told about helping a young gay man who had been bullied at school. Were those the two primary impetuses for doing this? For coming out, and do you feel like I mean, you, you mentioned it at the outset, but it, it sounds like you feel as if doing this, your story is already helping others. Correct. That that was those those two events. One was Peter and his suicide, and the other one was this high school kid that came for the interview. And I granted him the interview. He, he you know told him you know needed to knock down the barriers that he needed to get 
not what you are, it's who you are. And it's the who part that people remember. And we talked about different um, organizations that he could get with and, and that would help him overcome some of these problems. And, you know, we talked about it, and he left with a fairly good attitude. And then I never heard from him again. And then about two years later, his mother called up and said, you don't know me, but you granted my son an interview, and I just want to tell you that you saved his life. When that comes from a mother, that's a pretty heavy thing to deal with. And so it was one of the main things that I said, you know, if I can help one kid, maybe I can help two kids or 10 kids or 100 kids get enough confidence to deal with the problems that they're they're facing, whether... And, and it's the same thing with suicide when and the mental health issues. People are ashamed of admitting that they have a mental health problem, just like they're ashamed to admit that they're gay. But if you have enough information about different subjects, you're going to be able to analyze it and make more intelligent decisions about those different variables. And so, you know, I, that was, you know, one of the reasons why I said, okay, now's the time to to make the decision to come out. It's not like I was, you know, I think the racing industry was very accepting of that fact. We didn't talk about it a lot, but, you know, most most guys knew, knew about it. Most teams knew about it. Most manufacturers knew about it. But I always was very considerate of not pushing it in their faces. So, you know, it was done with a lot of integrity, and I didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable about it. While you were racing as a closeted man then, Hurley, it, it didn't weigh on you so much, it sounds like, during your racing career. It wasn't something that you felt as if you had to put out there to, to have like a weight lifted while you were you were racing. Yeah, no, it didn't really affect my racing too much. You know, and most of the teams that I drove for knew about it, or at least it was not something that was necessarily discussed in the open, but I think everybody knew about it. And it wasn't something, as I said, it wasn't something that I was particularly trying to hide, but it was not something that I wanted to publicly discuss because I I knew that, you know, people would be uncomfortable about it. I didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. You talked, Hurley, in the movie about how behind uh, every great person is a person who stands behind them. And parts of the movie where it talks about your relationship to your husband, Steve, was the success you had in racing, did Steve have a role in some of your success? And if so, you know, was it in part because he didn't seem to have much interest in racing? It almost seemed as if you complimented each other well. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, he, you know, I, I've had great people that have stood behind me in a lot of different ways, but he, his was the most, you know, personal thing. And he, by having somebody that understands you perfectly, is able to help you deal with some of these you know, issues that you've got. You know, you racing drivers, I think, are always questioning their ability. They're always questioning, you know, am I good enough for the task today to beat the guy next door to me? And Steve was always there that if I was feeling down in the dumps about something or if I was unsure about something or that he would always be there to sort of encourage me to, you know, look at the, the long game look where you want to get to, don't, you know, dwell, dwell too much in the in the present. So he was um, really good with that. But, you know, most of the people that 
you know, I drove for, whether it was, you know, Bob Tullius was a guy that really was able to to motivate me to perform at 100% of my capabilities without pushing me over the line too far. And so he, he was really good at doing that. Bruce Levin, Peter Gregg, all the guys that I drove for, Al Holbert, they knew what my story was, but they were were able to to motivate me from the standpoint of, yes, these guys know my story, but still they're standing 100% behind me. And that, from a confidence standpoint, from a racing driver, was really important to, to, to have that kind of support from the guys that you were driving with. You came out about, I believe, a, a year ago. If you wanted to drive again, do you feel like you could now, or would it be harder with your sexuality now out in the open? Well, that, I'm not going to drive again. So that, uh, <laughs> right. Question, but, yep. I, but I think I, I think racing is becoming more accepting of different cultures, and mm-hmm. I know that the sanctioning bodies are very proactive in diversity and getting as many people from diverse backgrounds to drive their cars, stock cars, indie cars, sports cars. So I think as we evolve as a generation, that that generation becomes more accepting of, of diversity. And especially in this and age where we sometimes really have to think about what we're doing and what we're saying and the consequences of, of those actions. Every day you open the paper and some horrible thing has happened, and it's just... Um, you know, we have to be conscious that we're always aware and move forward to to help these people. You know, you, know, you don't, you don't, you want to listen to these people. You don't want to condemn everybody for everything that they do. If you listen to somebody talk through a problem, then maybe you can come with a good solution to help them with their problem. Is there a series or sanctioning body, Hurley, that you think would be? more receptive and tolerant to an LGBT driver? Or is there one that would be maybe most receptive or tolerant? Is there any that, that stands out? I, I think all, all of the sanctioned bodies. You know, I basically am, a, am an IMSA driver, and I think that there's a lot of diversity in IMSA. Uh, and when you look at the, the driver lineup, there's a lot of individuals from various different backgrounds and ethnic, ethnic backgrounds where it's accepting. I think that NASCAR is making, you know, big efforts to to diversify in their in their uh, driver lineup. Um, so I I think everybody is thinking about that on how they can increase fan base. You know, the more the more fans you get into into your organization uh, as fans following, that the better you're going to get. Like you know, there's some really wonderful women racing drivers right now. Danica is uh, retired, but she, before she retired, she had a huge fan base. And so those things, are, I think, are, are really important. And I think all of the diverse, diverse facility and the, you know, scope is, is good. I think, you know, and whether you want to come in and come in on a platform of being with the LGBT community, I think that's doable, but it has to be done correctly.
Do you think there are any drivers now who are LGBT but closeted driving in a big league racing series who might come forward in the future? Well, if there are, I hope they do. I mean, I think, you know, the more people that are out there that say, okay, you know, I'm going to come out. But again, you know, it has to be done the right way. You just don't want to suddenly come out and say, you know, I'm gay and this is the way it is. It has to be done with a lot of integrity, a lot of thought, and have a have a, a mission statement that you want to, you know, put forward. In my case, it was, you know, it was helping kids that have problems with, you know, their sexuality, and they turn to, to suicide to solve that problem. And so, you know, giving people the strength to knock down the barrier, that's that's what the mission of the film was. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to have you have to have a plan, you have to have a mission statement, and then once you come up with that, then you move forward. And it's kind of like, you know, back in the '80s when when Martina and, and Billie Jean King were out there on the tennis courts, you know, they they were the sort of the the leaders as, as far as the LGBT community goes, and people were looking at them and going, you know, God, they're they're really great tennis players. And then when Billy Jean King took on Ricks to beat him in one of the most highly televised sporting events ever, and that was that was great. You know, she just clobbered him. Those are the kind of things that make a good story, and they make a good storyline to give you know kids a similar backgrounds the strength to go forward. It's interesting, Hurley, hearing you talk about you know the the way that a driver would best go about coming out, and it does sound like there's a little bit of uh, thought and, and process that needs to be put into it. And it reminds me a little bit of when I've talked to female race car drivers, people like Danica Patrick. What I often hear is, "I don't want to be known as a female race car driver. I want to be known as a race car driver who happens to be a woman." And it sounds like is that a similar sort of philosophy, maybe for somebody. I don't want to be known as as the gay race car driver. I want to be known as a race car driver who just also happens to be gay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a very fair statement. You don't want to be known for your ex, for your sexuality. You want to be known as a good racing driver. The better you are as a racing driver, the easier it is to accept that that person might be gay or might be a lesbian or might whatever. So, I I, I think. Your record is important to bring the message forward. So the better you are as a racing driver, easier it is to to be able to come out. Because then they say, "Well, Hurley came out as gay, but look, you know, how can that be? Look at all these races that he won, all these championships that he won. Gay people aren't supposed to be able to do that." Well, guess what? History proves otherwise. Has anyone confided in you uh, as far as like a gay driver of, of any sort or any series who anyone who's heard your story and, and reached out? Uh, actually, yes, they they have. Um, not people that are currently racing drivers, but people that are thinking about that occupation and thinking about coming out. And they said, you know, I read your read the book and I read about the the film and you know this is something I really want to do and I was really beating myself up saying you know you'll never make it in this thing because because I'm gay or because or whatever and so it, it gave 
these kids, you know, something that, that they can think about that this is something that's that's possible. I can do this, and it's just like it's the barrier. You know, you're knocking down the barrier. Everybody in life, I don't care what occupation you're in, has a barrier that they have to knock down to move forward. And if you don't knock that barrier down, you're not going to make forward progress. And that's the that's the thing that everybody has to think about. But you just don't want to do things on a careless nature. You know, racing kind of is one sport where carelessness will will cost you your life. You know, you don't want to come out just because of this, you know, coming out. You want to come out with a, a mission and something that can be a positive thing for the audience you're talking to. And so far, you know, so far the response from my fan base has been amazing with people that I never in a million years would have thought, you know, would give a rat's ass about it, suddenly are, are saying, I saw that movie and I read that book. And, you know, I, I picked out things that really I can identify in my own life, how I can help my kids or how I can help my marriage or, you know, whatever that case might be, there's something in the documentary that they can pull out that will help help them. And that, that's a sign of a really great, documentary i think patrick dempsey thinks the same way he said the mission here is loud and clear yep yeah that's terrific people are listening i'm glad you're getting that kind of response and reaction toward the end of the movie hurley i'm going to quote something that you said you say that it gets easier as time goes on history unfolds people will look at me differently i'm happy and lucky to have people in life and i wouldn't trade it for anything period. What got easier about being able to do this and, and come out early? Is it as simply as just, you know, society being more accepting and, and you seeing that and the response that you're getting uh, of support from your fan base? Or was it simply also maybe just putting distance between yourself and the end of your racing career? Well, racing is my life. And it, it's something that I'm really proud about, what I've, I've been able to accomplish behind the wheel of a race car. And there's so many things that I'm doing because of that successful, you know, I work for Porsche. I work for their PR department. You know, I go to most of the races. It would be hard to, you know, take Hurley out of the equation of having, uh, you know, the racing history behind it. And so it's just, it's another platform that I can stand on and say, you know, I'm not going to get up there and beat my chest. Jim Busby said, you know, the worst thing that Hurley could do would be to be a militant. I'm not going to be a militant, but I'm also not going to stand in the shadow. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that it can be a positive effect for racing in general. I mean, you know, you look around at the number of fans that are gay, it's pretty a large number. And if we can say to these guys, you know, racing is something that you know, people are open, and you're welcome to come to our racetracks, and you're welcome to come, you know, be a be a fan of of IMSA or NASCAR or IndyCar. Uh, that's something that I think everybody should be looking at. Our thanks to Hurley Haywood for his time and his candor. Beyond being remarkably successful as a race car driver, he also has a very unique story, and we appreciate him sharing that with us. Also, thanks to Erica Abrams and April Tonsil for helping put me in touch with Hurley to talk about his life and that new movie. That new documentary, by the way, is called Hurley, and you should be able to find it streaming on demand from The Orchard. 
So now let's move to our conversation with Sebastian Bourdais, whom I spoke with on the day it was announced last month that he'd be honored on the Long Beach Motorsports Walk of Fame. I guess I should start by congratulating you. I understand there was some news uh, yesterday out of Long Beach that you're going to be honored with the uh, Walk of Fame. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's happening. Um, so it's quite quite cool. Usually you get those when you either retire or when you pass. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad of those have happened. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I read that this is the first time they're inducting active drivers with you and Will Power. So that's pretty cool. Um, where do you feel like the Long Beach Grand Prix fits into your career, Sebastian? Obviously, you've had great success there. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just uh, it's pretty much at the end of just, you know, how things happen for me in gem cars. To the exception that it kind of clicked. Uh, the first year was probably my toughest weekend. Although just looking for pace, looking for feel, just not being comfortable, being quite down to Bruno and the fans, and uh, yeah, just really just struggling overall. And uh, and then the next year, something happened during the race. I, I yeah, found something. I, I got something, and and then I kind of latched onto that and, and was able to reproduce that feel the, the years. Uh, after that, and for the next three years, and, and just kind of run away with it in 05, 06, and 07, and that's some very fond memories of, of those three races. Feeling very much in unison with the car, and just making one, and, and yeah, just attacking and, and having at it, and um, both being fast and, and being lucky and, and winning the races. So I'm just uh, have just some great memories over there, and, and it's also. One that kind of carried when uh, when I reunited with with Craig and, and Dale, uh, and even with Olivier at KV, we were on the second row in, in 14. And uh, I mean, I made a mess of it in the race, but uh, we, I've been a factor at Long Beach for most of the the times that I've been to the event, and and uh, yeah, it's just one that I've always uh, look forward to. So your debut there was was 03, where where you struggled for maybe the. The first and only time, and then, as you said, uh, third in 2004, and then three straight wins, 05 to 07, and, and two from the pole. When you look back at that run, Sebastian, I mean, I, I think you've always been regarded as one of the great street and road course racers in, in IndyCar, and that run, I'm sure, cemented that kind of reputation for you, but that you're also being inducted into this walk of fame with Will Power, who I think also might be regarded as the other guy in IndyCar who might be among the greatest. Do you feel as if you're kind of his equal on these sorts of circuits, and is it maybe apropos that you guys are being honored together? No, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't intend the, uh, the uh, comparing exercise. I think, because what we are been able to do is just, you know, all the polls. I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's not for, you know, some things out of his control or, you know, getting shuffled by yellow or, you know, whatever, mechanicals, you name it. Uh, you know, the group that uh, he's been working with at Penske and his engineer uh, and the guys around him, uh, the quality of the equipment and the quality of wheel, you, you look at the number of poles and you're like, okay, wow, that's, <laughs> that's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, Will just seems to be the guy when, when you don't think there's anything left. A little bit like Lewis, I would say. You know, just kind of seems to be able to just, you know, pull a few more chance off of it and just like make it happen in Q3 and just say, yeah, there you go, another goal. You know, and it's like, you know, in, in this day and age with the competitivity of the field, uh, of the drivers and, uh, you know, the, the places we go to, it's it's quite you know, remarkable what he's been able to do over there. So for me, it's really been 
smaller two career kind of looks. Um, you know, one where obviously I was in the championship winning team and shooting a lot, uh, you know, getting 31 goals out of, I think, 73 races or something. And then obviously you look at, you know, the, the second part of my career when I came back uh, to this day, you know, with much smaller teams and, and, and you know, let's fix it, like, big old position, you know. Uh, it, it's just not been the same kind of success at all. And, uh, I'm okay with that, but, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, it also tells you, you know, it's, it's a sport where you need the full combination. It's not as easy as some people think. You've had success the last couple of years there with Dale Coyne. You reunited with Craig Hampson last year, and you were second at Long Beach in 17, and last year you were 13th, but you might have had the the best pass of the year that... Certainly, the best pass that ever that wasn't actually a pass, according to race control. I was I, I went back and watched it. When you look back at that move you made to go three wide through pit exit, where would you rank that in terms of moves that you've made on on street and road courses during your career? Well, it was never intended to go that way. <laughs> that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, it went from a, a fairly straightforward outside pass with a massive run on Scott and whoever whoever he was fighting with at the restart, who was lap down into a save and then Scott didn't really tell me um, or Robbie didn't tell me either but I started but it's pretty clear when you look at the video that uh, he either gets a message that I'm, I'm coming in hot on the right uh, on his right and uh, and it just takes a little look and starts you know trying to block except I'm coming in there push to pass and double toe from 10 miles an hour faster than every other car there is in front of me and you know and they're fall press, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be easy. Until Scott moves over and blocks, and there's nowhere for me to stop or go. At that point, it's just like, you know, evasive action. Just try to make sure that, you know, I don't know how far you're going to go to the right. It turns out you just left me probably just enough room for me to, to stay on the track. But, I mean, I lose the closing rate and the speed where <laughs> like, I'm not even taking the chance. I'm just, I didn't even care about Pit exit, rumble strips, those big old uh, plastic, you know, uh, domes and stuff. I mean, I'm just like, I just react to him moving over. And, uh, and which by definition is also blocking, but I guess they didn't view it this way. Uh, until I presented my version and they said, yeah, you're probably right. And probably kind of screwed that one up, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, at that point, I just end up, you know, on those little plastic rounds, booms, and, and the car is jumping up and down and it's not slowing down. Yeah. Like, it's up in the air. You don't actually see it, but <laughs> it's just bouncing up and down. And I am not stopping. Like, it's just like, oh my God, what am I doing now? And uh, and and then I discovered Matthias, who was never in place, who was never intended to be fast at that point. And, and he comes in play because I'm completely overspeeding by the point you know I discover him and and again because I'm not stopping anywhere near as fast as I planned had I been on the racetrack um, so yeah at that point it's just another evasive move going left trying not to make sure that I didn't hit him and and then the third act is like trying not to slam into the, the wall and the tires staying on the brakes pretty much until the apex which uh, isn't exactly supposed to happen like that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it basically was a legit pass that turned into a massive save, which turned into a, a, an awesome 
piece of action for TV, which turned into a penalty. <laughs> 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 so, so there's a lot of unintended consequences on, on this one, and unfortunately, the the repositioning cost me stuff not, but it cost me to say I would have made it to pit lane had I not lost those seconds in the exchange, the repositioning, and everything. Uh, I would have probably made it to the pits before they closed it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just uh, just trickled and had so many more consequences than uh, than it should have had. But that's racing for you, a lot of things out of your control. Yeah, very, very true. And unfortunately, no good deed goes unpunished in this instance, but certainly gave us a great highlight to look back at. Do you remember, Sebastian, what your reaction was? So the penalty, just so everybody's clear here, like, you know, you're crossing the line at pit exit is essentially what they said was wrong. Do you remember your reaction when you were told that's a penalty? Did you, did you expect it was coming because you knew you had you'd gone over those strips? Honestly, initially, no, I didn't think so because I really thought that they would see that there was a block. Yeah. Uh, and that was just the action just to try and make sure that it was not going to turn into chaos. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it was what it was, and I was really frustrated. And, and I guess my frustration very often at times just comes out and pushing even harder and, and just regaining really the position on the next lap. But, yeah, I mean, no matter... But, I mean, it's just kind of, it is what it is. You, you're just the actor, not the judge, so you just have to deal with the consequences of, you know, whatever penalties issues or action is taken. So I primarily covered NASCAR for NBC, Sebastian. I covered St. Pete, going to be doing Long Beach, I'm going to be doing Indy, but the only race I did last year was the Indy 500, and because I'm used to NASCAR, I'm, I'm accustomed to teams being penalized, but the number of stewards' reviews that, that were announced when I was sitting in the media center last year during Indy kind of surprised me. So I'm just curious, like somebody like yourself, somebody, you know, a driver who's who's had a pass like that, gotten taken away, how do you look at the way that the, the stewards... Uh, officiate these races? Do you feel it's a no-win situation, they do the best they can? Do you feel as if th- there are sometimes instances with, where they go overboard? I guess, what would it be like, I guess, if you were Jay Fry for a day and were running race control? What, what would be your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, Jay doesn't run race control. Jay has a lot of hacks and has his uh, plate full of things to do, but thankfully that's not one <laughs> on top of that. Uh, Max and Max and Harry obviously love to review those those incidents. The biggest problem they have really is just in most places we go to the, the resources they have to review incidents depends on the angle that they're provided and, and they don't you know, always get the all the facts to make the call and, and sometimes the facts they have they think, you know, is enough and then they're presenting a different view and they're like, geez, you know, that that's a completely different perspective that should come with a completely different consequence um, and and you know i think it's true in, in any sport you know you always when you have judge of facts um you know you, you introduce human errors on both sides I and mean, it is what it is they do the best they can and sometimes they, they get it wrong and, and congratulations to humans you know <laughs> that's the way it's just the way it is i mean there's nothing you know aiming at anybody in particular it just but uh, i think it's also um you know, the, the biggest thing uh, for us is that obviously aggressivity is quite high and our racing is uh, quite close uh, and it needs to be somewhat tempered and there needs to be somewhat the fear of, of the, and the consequence of families because if you don't, then you know you, you start to just let people have at it. And unfortunately, when you do that, at the speeds we go to, at the tracks we visit, and 
most times on ovals and circus too, in particular, there needs to be a certain degree of respect that needs to be given between drivers. And the only way to do that, most for the most part, is to make sure that people are afraid of being penalized. So, yeah, I do, I do agree with the fact that yeah, we, need, we need to be probably firmer than, than uh, relaxed on those because, you know, the consequences are just too great when, when we get it wrong and, and you know, nothing is done. It's not NASCAR. We don't have doors or fenders <laughs> or bumpers. You know, when when we collide, yeah. when we collide, wheels, cars fly, and when it flies, God knows what happens from there. So yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you, you you almost have to be more vigilant than you would be on the NASCAR side for for that exact reason. You have to. Yeah. Not not almost have to. You have to. You have to. You absolutely have to. You're right. You mentioned Craig Hampson. I know we're only uh, one race into to 2019, but you guys obviously had some success last season. And how has that been? Was that a big win for you to be reunited with somebody you'd, you'd had success with previously in your career? I mean, yeah, no, no denying. You know, obviously, I, I both both of my past and most you know friends. <laughs> yeah. And and successful race engineers with with Olivier Boisson from from KV and and uh, Craig from the Newman Half Days. So uh, it's no uh, it's not a surprise or or uh, a coincidence. Um, you know, they're they're the best two guys I've worked with in my career, and um, they're both very talented and have different ways to do things. But uh, they, they definitely carry a carry a big load on their shoulders, and 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 you know that conversation now with Jimmy and, and, and Sully uh, to the forefront of, of, of the, the map. And, um, yeah, for me, it's it's just uh, it's just been a great opportunity. I mean, it doesn't change the fact that we're somewhat of a smaller team. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we've, we've created more upset than uh, than uh, a lot of people would have probably bet it on. And, uh, and we're just doing that. I mean, as far as the start, it's supposed to be not be hot on Friday, and then we put the we tried a couple of the things and it didn't work, and we put the, the stuff back from last year, and uh, and then on Saturday morning we were P2 at the beginning of the session. Um, we get a, a read on your tires, made a mistake, moved the red flag, uh, and then I didn't turn a single lap in, in qualifying, and we turned 11 laps in the race. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of kind of tough to judge where we were getting at, but uh, sure. Yeah, I think we had, we had a, a competitive package again. It's true that our street course package has been more of a problem. The car is you know, newer kid that was introduced last year is very front right sensitive and it's hurting me particularly. Uh, and so when you have to run soft and high on street courses, that tends to be a bigger problem. I guess the only street course exception as far as space and stuff is concerned last year was, was on reach. So. Hopefully it folds through again, and uh, we can we can put on a on a good show at the you know the home race for Acura and, and Honda. I mean, it's, uh, it's always been one that was obviously uh, very important on the Honda side, but now it can be even more the case. So hopefully we can we can have a strong showing there. As you know, uh, NBC also has uh, sports car coverage and has IMSA this year, and I know that you've done some running over there as well. In addition to your IndyCar work, I know Sebring and, and Rolex, and and you have Le Mans for Chip Ganassi Racing coming up in a few months. And uh, just wondering, you know, for you as, as a Frenchman, what that's like. I thought it was interesting. I was reading some of the F1 coverage from this past weekend and their season open in Australia and how Daniel Ricciardo was kind of talking about how he maybe struggled in adapting to a new team because he's got so many commitments as the native 
hero and son for that race. What's it like for you as a Frenchman going to, you know, not just the world's biggest sports car race, one of the biggest races in the world at 24-hour Le Mans, but also being racing in your native country? What's your really more than that? Uh, if I was just French, it'd be one thing, but it's my hometown. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you, you have, uh, uh, you know, you still have a lot of friends and family over there, but then you have even more friends. It's always a very, very complicated, difficult, overloaded week for me, especially when it's stuck between two IndyCar races, uh, like it is. Uh, so it's, I mean, it, it's awesome and super difficult at the same time. Um, you get there, you're tired, and it's a long week, and, and uh, the, you, know, you, have, you have a lot of things that you'd like to do and, and want to you know, be there for the people who help you over your career and, and you know, make appearances and stuff like that. But it's just, I mean, the schedule at the moment is already brutal. You know, just like the week itself is, is brutal for anybody. Uh, so you can only imagine what it kind of looks like for me when you try and, and, and see some friends and family and, and have other commitments on that, and, and yeah, it, it, it turns into a, a pretty chaotic situation pretty quick, but it's also, you know, it's also great. So, I mean, it, it's just that the balancing that's difficult to uh, to find, but, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's, it, it's a race that's very close to my heart, and, uh, and you know, I was fortunate enough to win it with those guys in, in 16 on the return, and that will remain in history and, and in the Ford history, <laughs> and, and I couldn't be any more proud of that. And uh, you know, it's the last year of the program, and uh, yeah, we'll see if we can do it again. I mean, it'd be pretty fun. Can you tell where Chip Ganassi Racing sort of stacks up for that race based off the the first two this year, or is it is it a completely different track? And uh, we have no idea touch? yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. completely going to depend on what kind of BOP we get. Unfortunately, it's it's all we talk about. Um, I wish it was different. It was a little boat, and everybody did their car with a little bit within the regulation and just went at it, but that's just not the way things go anymore in, in force cars. So, um, yeah, and unfortunately, you kind of brace until you you know what kind of package you're going to get, and uh, I'll tell you if we're, if we're going to be competitive or not, which even if you're not, it doesn't mean you can't win. There's a lot of things that can happen, but uh, it, sure, uh, it sure can kind of make or break you a little bit. I appreciate you calling, Sebastian. Thanks for your time. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Our thanks again to Sebastian Bourdais for spending some time with us, and our thanks to Pat Caporelli of IndyCar PR for setting that up. If you want to see Sebastian race this weekend, you can catch all the IndyCar coverage from Long Beach on NBC Sports Gold and NBCSN. All these times are Eastern. IndyCar practices from Long Beach will be on NBC Sports Gold on Friday, April 12th at 11.10 a.m. and 2.45 p.m., and Saturday, April 13th at 10.40 a.m., and Sunday at 11.05 a.m. And then you can watch qualifying at 2.45 p.m. on NBCSN, and the race Sunday, pre-race coverage begins at 4 p.m. on NBCSN. Also, IMSA coverage from Long Beach will begin at 4.30 p.m. Saturday on NBCSN. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Please leave a rating and review if you liked what you're hearing. That really helps us spread the word and give others a chance to be aware and, and also hear the podcast. And if you have any feedback, you can send to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.